For such small organs, our kidneys perform some disproportionately large functions in our bodies. Unfortunately, the rate of kidney disease in the U.S. is higher than you might think, requiring treatments ranging from medications to dialysis and, in severe cases, kidney transplant. On today's show, we'll learn about our kidneys from a couple of leading researchers in kidney disease. The kidneys are responsible for many functions that are important for our well-being. A regular checkup, such as a yearly visit to a physician, will help prolong the health of the kidneys. And later, we'll hear from a man in our community who needed a kidney transplant. I'm going to get my kidney transplant, and then I'm going to be okay, and i got to maintain a good lifestyle to honor the person that gave up their kidney. And the woman who donated a kidney to him. Would I do it again? Yeah, I would. I keep thinking, since my kidneys are so fabulous, this one's just going to grow back and then I can keep donating it. It's a look at kidney function, health, disease, and treatment through transplant inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Milwaukee VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. National Kidney Month is observed each March to focus on kidney health and to promote awareness, prevention, and treatment of kidney disease. April is National Donate Life Month, focusing on encouraging Americans to register as organ donors and to celebrate those who have given the gift of life through organ donation. Today, we combine these two causes on our show. Right now, let's learn more about our kidneys from a couple of experts. Dr. Bruce Julian is Professor Emeritus in the Division of Nephrology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, who's conducted extensive research in the kidney disease known as IgA nephropathy. Dr. Jan Novak is Professor, Department of Microbiology at UAB, whose research focuses on chronic inflammatory diseases, including IgA nephropathy. Our conversation begins with the basics. What exactly are our kidneys? Dr. Bruce Julian. The kidneys are two bean-shaped organs in the abdomen that are each about the size of a fist that produce urine. Kidneys are composed of very small structures called nephrons. Each nephron has a structure called a glomerulus that filters the blood and a tubule that reclaims most of the water and salts that are filtered from the blood. The word nephron is the basis for some of the terms used to indicate kidney disease like nephritis, which refers to inflammation, or nephropathy that refers to damage of the nephron. And what's the function of healthy or normal kidneys? Kidneys generally perform three major functions. The first is maintenance of body composition to regulate the volume of fluid in the body and concentrations of salt and water and the acidity in the body while preventing loss of proteins from the blood. A second function is to excrete waste products from metabolism and many other foreign substances called the process of cleaning the blood. 
And the third function is a synthesis of hormones and enzymes that are important for other organs to function. In talking about kidney disease, it's important to consider that it's really a spectrum of conditions. Some conditions arise in the kidney and damage is relatively limited to the kidneys and this can take various forms and it has different consequences. Other diseases that affect multiple organs like diabetes mellitus or systemic lupus, the kidneys are caught in the entire process that involves damage to multiple organs. What are some common symptoms or signs of someone suffering from kidney disease? Things like swelling of the legs with fluid, sometimes frequent urination or foaming of the urine, headaches particularly if they have high blood pressure due to kidney disease, and in late stages a loss of appetite and some of the common signs of kidney disease, high blood pressure particularly in Caucasians before the age of 40. Some folks are diagnosed with blood or protein in the urine. Some children will develop visible blood in the urine, sometimes with colds or sore throats or febrile illnesses. Are there significant risk factors for kidney disease? Well, one of the major risk factors would be a family history of kidney disease. Then if the person has developed diabetes or hypertension, those processes can damage the kidney and cause problems later on. What about the morbidity or occurrence rate of kidney disease in the U.S.? Dr. Jan Novak. The overall prevalence of chronic kidney disease is about 14%, which is a really high number. Chronic kidney disease may develop over many years and ultimately leads to end-stage kidney disease, at which you need to replace the kidney function either by dialysis or by transplantation. He adds that treatment comes at a staggering cost. Medicare spending for patients with chronic kidney disease ages 65 and over in 2013 exceeded $50 billion. That's five zero, and it represented 20% of all Medicare spending in this age group. So it translates into really staggering spending. And the mortality or death rate from kidney disease is higher than you might think. Each year, kidney disease kills more people than breast or prostate cancer. And in 2013, NIDDK puts a number at 47,000 Americans died from kidney disease. So considering efforts about breast cancer and relatively less popularization for kidney disease, and efforts to cure them, there is really a big gap. And Dr. Julian adds that the prevalence of kidney disease varies among racial or ethnic groups. Some kidney diseases are more common in African Americans, specifically diseases known as focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, HIV-associated kidney disease, kidney diseases induced by poorly controlled blood pressure, and kidney disease arising as a consequence of systemic lupus. Whereas others are more common in Native Americans or Asians, and specifically that would be for IG nephropathy. Later in today's show, we'll hear from someone who suffered from IgA nephropathy, also known as Berger's disease. We asked Dr. Julian to tell us about this specific kidney disease. It was first described in 1968 by Jean Berger, a French physician, who examined kidney tissue of patients with blood in the urine. And the hallmark of the disease is the prominent presence of an antibody called IgA or IgA1 because it's limited to the subclass that is stuck in the filters of the kidney known as the glomeruli and cause damage and scarring. And that scarring can negatively affect kidney function. When the scarring happens, you can then develop a leak from the blood side of the filter to the urine side of the filter, and that causes sometimes blood and red blood cells and protein to leak into the urine. The damage may also result in decreased ability to excrete salt and water, and excessive amounts of salt and water in the body can lead to swelling in the legs and high blood pressure. 
and damaged kidneys do not produce the customary amounts of various hormones. For example, if you decrease kidney function and you have decreased erythropoietin production, the marrow makes less red blood cells and that leads to anemia and low blood or anemia can cause problems with lack of energy or lack of endurance. A lot of what's known today about IgA nephropathy is based on discoveries made at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, where Dr. Julian and Dr. Novak conduct clinical research. We defined IgA nephropathy as an autoimmune disease and it appears that IgA1 has types of glycans called O-glycans and on some of them there is a specific sugar called galactose that is missing. This so-called galactose deficiency makes this uh, type of IgA1 immunogenic. In response, uh, patients with IgA nephropathy generate autoantibodies that recognize IgA due to missing galactose and form uh, complexes which are this formation is normally associated with activation of complement. That's a cascade of proteins that are designed to prevent infections by bacteria or viruses. In this case, it generates immune complexes. Some of them deposit in the kidney, and it may result over time in essentially shutting down the glomerulus through process of inflammation and or fibrosis. What are common symptoms of Berger's disease? Children and young adults will notice presence of visible blood in the urine, and and that commonly occurs during a febrile illness, like a cold or a sore throat. Other patients, children and adults, will notice foaming of the urine if there's a lot of protein in the urine. It looks like soap suds in the toilet. But others show no symptoms at all. Many adult patients are asymptomatic and are discovered when they're evaluated for high blood pressure are found to have kidney disease by an abnormal urinalysis, or sometimes patients are completely surprised by an abnormal urinalysis at a time of employment physical or testing for insurance coverage. They may have no symptoms until substantial damage has occurred and the disease at that point is very advanced. So someone who thinks they have no kidney problems because they make lots of urine, that's a false hope because it's not the urinary volume but the urinary quality that's the issue. Are there specific drugs or therapies for treating Berger's disease? Presently there's really no disease-specific therapy. It's a matter of trying to treat some of the consequences of IgA nephropathy and specifically for high blood pressure. But certain medicines confer benefits beyond simply control of the blood pressure, and those agents fall into two general categories. Both have the additional benefit of decreasing scarring in the kidney, and in patients with Berger's disease, treatment with these drugs will help slow the process of scarring and therefore prolong life of the kidney function. What's the morbidity rate of Berger's disease? In the United States, the estimate of the prevalence of the disease is at one case per 100,000 persons. The main consequences in terms of morbidity I guess would be the loss of kidney function to the point of needing kidney replacement therapy, either in the form of dialysis or transplantation. And that happens for 20 to 40 percent of patients within 20 years of the diagnosis of IgA nephropathy. And the mortality rate? Dr. Novak says it's not entirely clear at this point. Data I being examined by Dr. Julian, Dr. Wyatt and colleagues, we found few studies that actually looked at it. One of them is from Norway. They looked at 633 patients diagnosed with IgA nephropathy in years 1988 to 2004 and followed them up through 2008. And they concluded that mortality in patients with IgA nephropathy was twice the expected rate, but it did not significantly increase before renal replacement therapy. So the risk of end-stage renal disease was substantially higher than the risk of death. So the big question, is Berger's disease curable? No, unfortunately it's not. And even folks that go on to need kidney replacement therapy, the disease does recur in transplants, and that may be as 
as high as 50 to 60 percent 10 years after transplant, but in most individuals that have been transplanted, kidneys are expected to function quite a while. We'll hear from a man who received a kidney transplant and the woman who donated the kidney to him in just a moment. But ahead of that, what's Dr. Julian's main takeaway for us regarding kidney health? The kidneys are responsible for many functions that are important for our well-being, and kidney health cannot be judged by simply measuring the amount of urine produced. A regular checkup, such as a yearly visit to a physician for measurement of blood pressure and check of urinalysis, will detect a lot of kidney diseases in their early stages, and it's at that stage that something might be done, including control of blood pressure, that will help prolong the health of the kidneys. And Dr. Novak wants us to know that collaborative team science is happening around the world to fight kidney disease. It's very important to have international, interdisciplinary collaborations. We work with many colleagues here in the U.S. There have been many activities funded by NIDDK, such as CureGN, effort to cure glomerular diseases, and one of them is IgA nephropathy. And we have many ongoing collaborations, and I believe that this type of interdisciplinary collaboration will be really conducive to finding ultimately the cure for the disease. We'll post links to the kidney disease research Dr. Novak mentions and more on our CTSI website along with this show. Our sincere thanks to Dr. Bruce Julian, Professor Emeritus, Division of Nephrology, and Dr. Jan Novak, Professor, Department of Microbiology, both at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, for sharing your expertise and insight on today's show. By the way, UAB is home of the Center for Clinical and Translational Science, an NIH grant-funded institution like the CTSI at the Medical College of Wisconsin and its partner institutions. April is designated National Donate Life Month by Donate Life America. It's an entire month dedicated to encouraging Americans to register as donors for organs, eyes, and tissue, and to celebrate those that have already saved and changed lives by donating. Today, we have the unique opportunity to hear from a man in our community who suffered from kidney disease, resulting in his need for a kidney transplant. And we'll hear from the woman in our community who donated her kidney to help save his life. First, meet Mike. Today, Mike lives a happy, productive, and healthy life, far healthier than just a few years ago. To understand Mike's story of where he is today, you need to go back several years when he lived a very different lifestyle as a professional touring musician. And when you hear that that might not be the easiest life, that's a correct statement. It's a lot of late nights, a lot of early mornings, bad sleep in bad hotels, a lot of travel. I didn't eat very healthy. Then, after coming off the road, Mike began noticing changes in his health. There was a long time when I didn't see the doctor and I didn't need to see a doctor because I felt fine. Then, it's kind of like the wheels came off. Suddenly, I ended up in the hospital. It was about 2007. I was progressively getting worse over probably a couple of years. And he noticed he felt tired pretty much all the time. Actually exhausted. I would be falling asleep at my desk at work. And any chance I could, I would lay down and flat out fall asleep. And I ended up losing that job because I continually fell asleep at my desk. I tried to sleep most of the time. It was always finding a place to lay down. And that got progressively worse. Soon, there were other symptoms of a serious health issue. There was microscopic traces of blood in my urine. And those microscopic traces became more visible when my urine was actually almost black. There was so much blood in it. And then 
it kind of culminated with, I happened to be driving and I was near my doctor's office, so I went to my doctor's office and they immediately called the ambulance and I ended up in the hospital. He admits that until he was hospitalized, he wasn't sure he was, in fact, seriously ill. As I was sitting in the parking lot of the doctor's office that day that I ended up having to go to the hospital, I was questioning, do I really need to go in or is this going to pass with a little sleep, you know? Mike soon found out how sick he really was. In the hospital, I spent about a week there and they ran a kidney biopsy. They came back and said, you have a disease that affects your kidneys. Your kidneys are failing and we have to get you on a treatment for that. The diagnosis? It's the same kidney disease you heard about earlier in the show. IgA nephropathy, also known as Berger's disease. They call it an orphan disease. Treatment was to start on a treatment of steroids and then two medications. A prognosis brought an answer, but not necessarily peace of mind. My condition did worsen. I think it was always assumed that my kidneys were going to fail, but they wanted to try a treatment to see if we can prolong the time for failure. Failure obviously means going on dialysis and then eventually uh, getting on a transplant list. And explained to me very thoroughly that dialysis and a kidney transplant is a treatment, not a cure. Having the kidney disease, just because you get a transplant doesn't mean that it won't come back. So we want to try to have it go into remission before we get to the point where we're talking major surgery. Mike says early treatment helped to slow his kidney failure a bit, but not nearly enough. I got a little bit of function back, not enough to make a significant difference. So the prognosis was eventually your kidneys are going to go into complete failure. When your kidneys fail, I mean, for a little organ, it does a big job and you don't have full function, you know. Despite his illness, he put on a brave face. My wife and I both tried our best to stay positive about what we were going through and try to be a good example for people to see how you function and what your attitude is like when you have a disease. And there were rough days when I was really sick and I could tell my kidneys were in failure. And then the inevitable happened. Mike's kidneys failed. There's only so much you can do when you're fighting something that's inevitable. I could feel myself getting worse. And I ended up going into the hospital two months after I got married. We had a wonderful honeymoon. I was feeling pretty good. And then the last 10 or 11% of my function went pretty darn quick. I was in complete failure at the end of that month. They were saying that you're under 10%, we're gonna start talking next step treatment. Which meant two things, dialysis and a kidney transplant. When you get to the end stage, the next step is to say, okay, now we're gonna go on dialysis. And then they explain the entire dialysis procedure. And of course, with that, they said, well, we're gonna start talking about the transplant and get you onto your kidney waiting list for a donor. If you want to, you can start asking people to volunteer to donate a kidney. Now you might think that the prospect of facing a kidney transplant is scary. But Mike says he felt different. Honestly, actually kind of a sense of relief. I always tried to have a positive outlook. It didn't always work, but I talked with other people in dialysis. Geez, I was the youngest person there by a good 30, 40 years. And if they were gonna get a kidney, which was very unlikely, they were on a really, really long waiting list. And so I wanted to try to pass off my positivity to them. It also helped that in his case, finding a match happened relatively quickly. The word got around. I started having people inquiring about donation of their own kidney. And I actually had five people fill out the paperwork and start the process filtering down to one person who was actually a match for me. Did Mike approach his transplant surgery with more concern or confidence? I had confidence, and the people at Freighter really got this thing down. 
all right, and they're the best at what they do because they have a great system in place and they have great doctors in place and they have a great learning facility where they're involved in your treatment. But I also have the attitude that I have two choices here. I can feel sorry for myself and say, why did this happen to me? And oh, you know, Or I can turn this into something positive and I can try to be a good example for people who are going through hardships like this. Yes, my disease was tough. I had a tough time. But I have an out with this. I can get a new kidney and I'm going to be good. As for his organ donor, we'll meet her in a moment. Mike feels it's important for her to tell her own story, but he does say... It's not just giving up your kidney. There's a lot of testing going on and it's very invasive and it's an extreme sacrifice, not just of the organ. So now, let's meet Mike's donor. Mary Kay is a nurse by trade, as well as a wife and the mother of two daughters. She says that her years of experience in the medical field shaped her viewpoint on organ donation long ago. I'm a nurse, so naturally my thought on organ donation was make sure you got that sticker on your driver's license. And I always encouraged anybody I knew or my kids even when they got their driver's license to make sure that, that they were organ donors as well. So I've always been active in a behind the scenes way. At the time she came to know about Mike's health concerns, they were friends, but not necessarily close friends. My husband plays bass for our church and met Mike through that process. Through their relationship, I became friends, or more acquaintances actually. At that point, we didn't really do much socially or hang out. It was more of my husband's relationship with Mike actually. But it wasn't long before she realized that this casual friend was quite ill. Mike just didn't look well. The nurse and me, of course, you know, had to inquire. I said, hey, you don't look good. What's going on? And he said, yeah, having some trouble. Um, I'm, I'm gonna need to be on dialysis. We're talking about my situation because that always comes up, you know, and she said, well, well if you ever need a kidney, let me know. And I said, well, hey, I might take you up on that, you know, and it turns out she was a perfect match. Never thought much about it until the day they sought me out again to see if it was a valid statement, if I was truly willing to consider being tested. How did that conversation go, being asked by someone to get tested for becoming their donor? You know, it was a difficult conversation. It's not like asking somebody to pick you up from the airport. It, it didn't really matter to me at that point, the relationship, just that there was somebody that needed something that I could provide. So for Mary Kay, getting tested was an easy decision to make. Yeah, because the testing part's easy. I'm a nurse. I'm used to all of those things that you need to do. So the testing part was quite honestly the easiest part of the process. But make no mistake, while the decision to get tested was easy, the process itself is quite involved. It's extremely lengthy. There's a series of medical tests to evaluate the health of your kidneys, in addition to a pretty in-depth psychological assessment, actually. The process itself takes about six months. Mike's first year of marriage was spent dealing with his illness. Then, as he and his wife were celebrating their first anniversary, they got a phone call. A day or two after our anniversary, we got the call that Mary Kay had been accepted as a match, and she said a couple of dates that we have open for the surgery. Mary Kay can't do this one because her daughter has a soccer game. She would like to do this one, and I said, whatever she wants. Mary Kay remembers getting the call that she was the ideal match for Mike. Her first reaction? The first thing I said was, wow, I passed the psych test. And then, as the reality of the situation sank in. I started crying. Um, that even telling the story makes me want to cry. What was behind her emotion, then as now? It's just crazy to think about. I'm 
going back to that moment of being utterly joyful and completely terrified at the same time. So did she have any reservations about going ahead with donating her kidney? As much as I'd like to say no, the truth of the matter is absolutely. I kept justifying the benefits versus what the self-sacrifice was to me. What if my kids need a kidney? What if my husband needs a kidney? You can what if yourself into scrapping the whole idea. But Mary Kay says the benefits quickly outweighed any concerns. With all of the things running through my head, my response was still immediate, other than having the conversation with my family. Otherwise, it didn't take long to think about it all. She says it helps that her family and friends were all so supportive. It's pretty interesting that not one single friend or family member encouraged me not to. Everybody just kind of, you know, wow, that's awesome. How can we support you? Next came a conversation with Mike, who would receive her kidney. How did that go? I remember it being kind of awkward. It's kind of odd to sit on a couch with someone and say, hey, I'm going to give you my kidney. That's honestly kind of how it felt at the time. With tests and conversations complete, Mary Kay just had to wait. I was cleared. I was good to go. As long as nothing changed in my health status or nothing significant happened to me, I was kind of on autopilot up until the day that the surgery was scheduled. Finally, the day of the transplant procedure. I happened to have worked at Freighter for a large chunk of my career. That's where I learned how to be a nurse. There's a lot of people I recognize. That was very comforting. We are in OR rooms back to back, just waiting for the exchange. We had a prayer with my family and my deepest friends. And after that, I was like, all right, let's roll. Both Mike and Mary Kay joke that they don't remember much about the surgery itself. They slept through it. But following the transplant, Mike says he felt results immediately. When I woke up after the surgery, I was in a lot of pain from being cut open, but I could tell immediately that I was better. I could tell immediately. I knew I was better, and I felt great. He felt healthier daily. I'd been sick for so long, I didn't know what it was like to feel as good as I felt after I got home. I slept better. I just felt better. I was going up and up and up. I felt so good, and I felt better and better and better every day. And you know what? It felt so good to urinate after all that time, you know? <laughs> But most of all, he felt thankful. I was so thankful for the people that stepped up. I was so thankful that Mary Kay was a perfect match for me. I was so happy that I had hope at the end of this whole thing that I was going to be okay again. I had bad days. I'm not going to lie to you. I ended up in the hospital a couple times. But I always had the hope that it wasn't going to be forever. If you have hope, that really takes care of a lot of that worry for you, man. What about Mary Kay's recovery as the kidney donor? Being a nurse, she knew what to expect for her recovery. Being an overachiever... Typical recovery is four to five days. I had a goal that it was going to be far shorter than that, and uh, I was out of the hospital in a day and a half. <laughs> as far as Mike's quality of life today with his new kidney... I have a good life. I really do. I have a wife that loves me, parents and a brother and in-laws that love me. I have a church family that loves me. My quality of life is awesome, and I try my best to make sure that Mary Kay knows too that I do not take that for granted. It's an incredible gift that I can never, ever thank her enough for but I still thank her every day for it. <laughs> I'm glad he's healthy. That's all that matters. That's thanks enough. And what's Mary Kay's life like now that she functions with one kidney instead of two? I felt it for a bit, but nothing that was unmanageable by any stretch of the imagination. Every activity of daily living, I performed just as I did when I had two kidneys. So no appreciable difference whatsoever. There's another important opportunity. Mary Kay's donation provided Mike and his wife, Angela. Because of the donation, they were able to start a family, which is something they were told they would never have. 
And so I have these two beautiful little kidney babies, as I call them. And look, I'm, I'm getting teary again. My wife and I beat the odds, and we just had our second child in December of last year. We named both of our boys with Mary Kay's initials in their names. Because they're not girls, we can't name them Mary Kay. So we've stayed very close. We live about a mile from each other, and she's a great auntie to them because they're partially hers. Today, Mike's in a great place, but he remembers the tough times, and he has encouragement for anyone needing an organ transplant. There are tough times. Trying your best to stay positive is a treatment in and of itself. You have to do what your doctors tell you. You have to take care of yourself the best you can. It's gonna suck sometimes, but you just gotta try to stay positive. And both have a message for anyone thinking about becoming a kidney donor. In short, everyone has two. You can get by with one. You can live a perfectly functional life with one kidney. You know, there's a reason we have two, and there's a reason that they're shareable. They don't agree on everything when it comes to organ donation. You're a hero, man. You're a hero when you donate. I don't consider myself a hero. I mean, God did this. I'm just the vessel. That's how I look at it. But they definitely agree that organ donation is a blessing. There are people out there that need kidneys and it improves that person's life and it gives the donor a really good sense of purpose and sense of fulfillment for their own life. If there's one thing I could do the rest of my life, it would honestly be to travel around the world and promote organ donation. It saved Mike's life, literally, but it ultimately saved me more. I'm blessed for being able to do it and it's pretty awesome. It is awesome. Really awesome. Thanks to Mike and Mary Kay for sharing your story. We'll be sure to post links for where listeners can learn more about organ donation on our CTSI website along with this show. And we'll hold on to that awesome feeling as we reach the end for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Once again, our sincere thanks to today's guests. Dr. Bruce Julian and Dr. Jan Novak from the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and Mary Kay and Mike, our kidney donor and recipient. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar to join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happy, healthy days ahead. For more information about research, events like our monthly science cafes, or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. While you're there, sign up as a community member. We need your help to advance clinical and translational team science and improve the health of our community and people worldwide. And remember, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer. Co-produced by Tom Crawford and Jeremy Kuzniar in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.